Good morning. Okay, we are in what book? I fooled you. We're going to go to Isaiah. And you say, wait a minute, I thought we were on Joseph. We are. Isaiah chapter 28 and verse 21. And I want you to scratch your head on this one for a minute. Isaiah chapter 28 and verse 21. It says, For the Lord will rise up as at Mount Perizim. He will be angry as in the valley of Gibeon, that, that he may do his work, his strange work. And I want to emphasize that because in the, that's the King James version of it. Uh, the New King James and a few other translations alter the word there a little bit. His strange work. And bring to pass his act, his strange act. The Lord reminded me of this verse this week as I was thinking about the life of Joseph. You're probably saying, what a strange verse that is. Where on earth does this fit in the life of Joseph? Well, let me set up the verse uh, for you for just a minute here. The Lord is speaking to his own people. Um, As you may know, Israel had split um, into Israel and Judah. He had already dealt with Israel. He's now focusing his attention on Judah. And uh, he is uh, speaking to his own people, the tribes of Judah. And they were about to be judged because of sin and because of their own sin. So God sent the prophet Isaiah into their midst, and he warned them about what God was about to do. And he says that he would rise up as at Mount Perizim. Well, you say, what is that? There was an event in David's life some years after the story of Joseph where he was recognized as the king of Israel. And as the king of Israel, the the, um, countries around him began to say, oh, great, new person in office. Let's see what we can do to overthrow the throne. And the Philistines were the ones who came in to do that. And so the Philistines basically came up against David to attack him. And David went before the Lord and said, Lord, if I go out to fight them, will I win? And he says, go, and I will be with you. And it says that he went out, he fought them, they were defeated, and there was a breakthrough. And the breakthrough there is um, parism, basically, is what it means. And so that's when the Lord rose up on behalf of David to fight David's enemies and won. Okay, there was a breakthrough there. That's Mount Parism. Well, it, it's um, the Lord stood up for David. He defeated David's enemies, and he broke through. Actually, just kind of a total aside here, but but remember Noah had talked about Judah and how he named his son Perez. But the word is actually very very similar. It comes from the same root, I believe. Is that correct? The plural. That's what I thought. Okay, so it's the same. Uh, type of thing that uh, we're talking about there then the verse says he will be angry as in the valley of Gibeon remember in Joshua's career they had been fooled by the Gibeonite people and uh, they thought they were from a far country and they made a treaty with them a peace treaty with them and then the countries around Gibeon said hey uh, (laughs) if you're Israel's friends you're our enemies and they went out and they began to fight against the Gibeonites. 
And so Joshua, having had a treaty now, he had to be right and fair in protecting them. And so he went out with his armies and, and he fought with them and he fought with them all night long. The Lord, I think that was the time when the, the sun stood still, is that right? And the, and the uh, Gibeonites were protected. And so again what happened was the Lord intervened on behalf of his people and protected them and destroyed the enemies. So it says in verse 21, Isaiah 28, For the Lord will rise up as at Mount Perizim, in the same way he is going to, to um, act. He will be angry as in the valley of Gibeon, that he may do his work, and then he says his strange work, and bring to pass his act, his strange act. The point of the verse is this. The Lord is not going to rise up against Judah's enemies. He is going to rise up against Judah. And that's what makes it a strange work. He is going to judge his own people. He is going to um, um, rise up against them. And twice in one verse, God calls it his strange work or his strange act. It really means that in God's economy... For him to rise up in judgment against his own people is a strange work. It's a foreign work to him. That's actually what the word means, foreign. It's, it's almost like it's out of character for God to do that. Because everywhere you see God rising up against the enemies of his people, but here, instead of that, he is actually going to rise up against his own people. And it's a strange work. Um, God doesn't want it to be like that. He doesn't want to rise up against his own people. He doesn't want to rise up in judgment against his own people. And so this tells us that God wants to give good and perfect gifts to us and to his people. And he is quick to defend and to protect. But when he must act in judgment, he does. But he's entering into what you might call alien territory when he does that. I hope that's understandable to you as I'm saying it. It's a strange word. It's not that he won't judge. He will. Of course he will. But he does not delight in that kind of work. He does not delight in causing judgment or causing punishment upon his own people. The rest of that passage in Isaiah actually describes the judgment in, in a... Uh, picturesque way for us. I won't go into all the details, but basically what he says is that he talks about a farmer and how the farmer takes different kinds of crop and how the farmer is able to get the final product, the seed or the wheat or the flour out of that crop. And what it indicates to us is that God takes special care for each individual person and is able to apply just the right pressure, just the right judgment, just the right um, circumstances in that person's life to bring them to the point of repentance and to bring them to the point where they are right with God. That's his ultimate goal. That's his ultimate purpose is to bring us back to himself that we might be walking in fellowship with him. So um, now the Bible talks about chastening and there is no chastening that is joyful. It's not joyful to the one being chastened or being spanked or being disciplined and it's certainly not pleasant for the one who's administering the discipline either and if done correctly it is actually more painful for the one administering the discipline 
than the one receiving it. Now, my father and your father probably said the same. This is going to hurt me more than it hurts you. And then he'd, then he'd take his hand and he'd whack me. You know? That's not politically correct today, today to do that. But I'm glad he did. In fact, he should have done it a lot more. You know? If the truth were known. And then I used to say, yeah, but I'm the one feeling the pain. How does this hurt you more than it hurts me? You know? But I'm a father now. And I know that it is extremely difficult. I don't want to, as a father, naturally, I don't want to discipline my children. That is not something I savor. It is not something that I like doing. It is not something that I get up in the morning and go, all right, I'm going to discipline my kids today. <laughs> all right? How many of you fathers have ever done that? Okay? In fact, I would rather shower them with gifts. I would rather shower them with affection. I would rather go out and have happy days together. But there comes a time in the life of a family where discipline is necessary. And it is the father's responsibility to act out in judgment. Even if it is against his nature. Even if it is against the way he likes to act towards his children. It is necessary. It is essential for the well-being of the children and for joyful, happy fellowship in the home. So, you must be wondering, what on earth does this have to do with Joseph? How are we spending this time in Isaiah when we should be talking about Joseph? Well, bear with me, and as we go back to Genesis, we'll start, well, we'll look at the, the last nine remaining chapters in the uh, book of Genesis. So take a look at Genesis 42. We want to see in this section what the Lord is doing in Joseph's life and how Joseph was completely in tune with God working with him in God's strange work. Because God is going to do a strange work here in the last few chapters of Genesis. It is interesting, this is another kind of side issue here, but it is interesting that the Lord spends just a few words at the beginning of Genesis to talk about the creation of the heavens and the earth and all that it contains. Now, if we were writing the book of Genesis, we would spend almost all of our time talking about that, I'm sure. But most of the time in the book of Genesis, he's talking about people. And the greatest portion of it is one family. And the greatest portion of that one family is this event. And it, it speaks of God's care for individuals to be walking in a way that is right, and walking in with, uh, right with God. So God is about to take Joseph and use him as the, um, his workman on earth to do his strange work in his own family. It, it is not Joseph, in Joseph's nature to do this. It is not what he would do naturally. But he does it because he realizes this is what God wants to accomplish in his family. And it's a, it's a masterful story. We're not going to be able to go into every detail of it. And I'd, I sure encourage you to read it. Um, how carefully uh, he brings the situation to bear in the lives of his brothers to bring full and complete repentance. And I can't emphasize that enough. That is the goal here. That is what Joseph is doing right from the get-go. He is wanting to bring full and complete repentance. A, hey, I'm sorry, 
is not full and complete repentance, okay? And he does it in a masterful way, God working with him uh, in this. All right, the last nine chapters. Now, if you were to study this, you would come and you were to, to put a title on this and say, what is this uh, story about? Most of you would probably say, Joseph and his brothers, okay? But I don't think that's the emphasis of this section. What I think is the emphasis of this is Joseph and his God. I really think that's what this passage is all about. God working uh, in and through Joseph. And we get an inside look at how God works in the heart of a man, and really it's quite revealing. Now, there's a New Testament verse I also want to just mention in passing here. It's a verse we all know, Romans 8, uh, 28. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. Joseph was one who loved God, no question about it. And God was at work in Joseph's life, even when he was hated by his own relatives, even when he was reduced to, uh, to slavery in Potiphar's house. God was working all things together for good, even in those circumstances. He was doing it when he was falsely accused, when he was forgotten by, the, uh, pot, by uh, Pharaoh's um, uh, servant, and ultimately when he was raised to glory. God was with him during the time of slavery, and he succeeded. God was with him in the time of prison, and he succeeded. And of course, God was with him in the time of exaltation, and he succeeded in all that he did. Now, if you love God this morning, I will tell you that every circumstance in your life is ordered and is designed by God for your good. He is working in your life, and he causes all things to work together for good. He doesn't miss a beat. Now, it may seem at times like your life is absolutely falling apart. It may seem like things are just out of control. But I will tell you right now, according to God's word, if you love God, he takes all of these events and he works them together for good. He's made that promise. Do you believe it? All right. Now, if you stare at your immediate circumstances, sometimes you'll wonder how, if God is going to do it, but if you love God, then you trust God too, okay? And even if you can't see it, you believe God because he is worthy of our trust, okay? You can believe him because of who he is and what he's promised. So the Bible tells us when Joseph was in prison, God used that time in his life to test him. It was a testing period in Joseph's life. And he was testing him in his ability to interpret dreams. Because God had one amazing dream, actually uh, two of them, that Joseph was going to have to interpret, and it would change the results, change the course of history. Really, it would. The chief butler forgot him, but God did not forget him. And at just the right time, two years after he had uh, given the interpretation of the chief butler's dream, God called upon Joseph again to fulfill what would be his life work. God would deliver, through Joseph, the entire world from famine. 
and restore Joseph's splintered family in a way that would result in full and complete repentance and a restoration of family ties. And all of this would point to one who is working behind the scenes and is in control of it all, causing all things to work together for good. Chapter 41 is Joseph's call out of prison and ultimately to teach Pharaoh what his dreams meant. Let's take a look at um, verses 33 to 46. So Joseph interprets the Pharaoh's dreams and uh, the Pharaoh recognizes that he needs somebody to accomplish what Joseph said is going to happen. So in verse 33, it says, Now therefore let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh do this and let him appoint officers over the land to collect a fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt in the seven plentiful years. And let them gather all the food of those good years that are coming and store up grain under the authority of Pharaoh and let them keep food in the cities. Then that food shall be as a reserve for the land for seven years of famine, which shall be in the land of Egypt, and the land, uh, that the land may not perish during the famine. So the advice was good in the eyes of Pharaoh and in the eyes of all of his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find such a one as this, a man in whom is the Spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Inasmuch as God has shown you all this, there is no one as discerning and wise as you. You shall be over my house, and all my people shall be ruled according to your word. Only in regard to the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring off his hand and put it in Joseph's hand, and he clothed him in garments of fine linen and put a gold chain around his neck. And he had him ride in the second chariot, which he had, and they cried out before him, Bow the knee. So he set him over all the land of Egypt. Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, and without your consent, no man may lift his hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh called Joseph's name uh, zaphnath Paneah, and he gave him as a wife Asenath, the daughter of Potiphera, uh, priest of On. So Joseph went out over all the land of Egypt. Joseph was 30 years old when he stood before Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went throughout all the land of Egypt. So Joseph's original dream is now coming true. He is now raised from a prison and into the highest command apart from Pharaoh in all the land of Egypt. And all who are in the land of Egypt must bow down to Pharaoh. Okay, I must bow down to Joseph, I mean. Okay? So the dream is being fulfilled, right? Was that the dream? No. It wasn't that the Egyptians would bow down to him. It was that his brothers would bow down to him. His family would come under his um, authority. What about his brothers? What about his family? Well, the stage is being set for that. So verse, uh, chapter 41, verse 50. And to Joseph were born two sons before the years of famine came, whom Asenath, the daughter of Potipharah, priest of On, bore to him. Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh. And this is what he said. For God has made me forget all my toil and all my father's house. And the name of the second he called Ephraim. For God has caused me to be fruitful in the land of my affliction. Well, the names of Joseph's sons reflect um, what God had done in Joseph's heart, what, jo what, what he had done uh, to Joseph himself. It, it's very interesting to me that as you read the story of Joseph, you don't see Joseph becoming a bitter, 
angry, grumpy person. Okay? You don't see that here. He's not complaining. If you want to take the, some of the greatest injustices um, in life, he had them. He had been met with terrible injustices in his life, but he did not become embittered by that. He saw, and it's clear from the names that he um, gave his sons, he saw that God was in control. And he had put the years of slavery and imprisonment behind him, and he had now raised him to this great position over the land of Egypt. And he put behind him all the injustices of his brothers. What Joseph saw here, and it comes out later in the book, was that God had a much, much bigger plan that he was unfolding for his life and for the life not only of the Egyptians, but ultimately for the life of his own family. In all of this, Joseph remembered what God was doing in his life. God made him forget. What it means is that he knew what his brothers had done. It wasn't that he didn't remember, but he was able to put that aside. He was able to put that out of mind and, and was not uh, stymied in life by, by the past. You know, Paul says something very interesting. He, he says, forgetting those things which lie behind. I press on. And Paul wasn't talking about the bad things in life. He was talking about his accomplishments. He was saying, look, even those... I, I put them aside. I put them back. It's not that I don't remember them. He, he reported them in the book. But he puts them aside because those things are past. You can't change that. And sometimes people, even believers, they live in the past. They dwell in the past. And they never get out of that rut. And God doesn't want us living in the past. He wants us to be living in the present, but for the future. What he wants to accomplish in our life. And so Joseph is really saying here, look, I am putting all of that aside. I'm putting it in the past where it belongs. If God wants to deal with it, great. But I'm not going to take it up as a personal vendetta. All right? And so he remembered what God had done. He also accepted the fact that God had made him fruitful. That's what the next uh, son's name means. In a country that had not treated him very fairly. So he looked beyond his circumstances and he looked beyond the injustices that had occurred in his life. And he thanked God and blessed God uh, for making him fruitful anyway. All right. Then we have chapter 42. Let's, uh, verse 1. When Jacob saw that there was grain in Egypt, Jacob said to his sons, Why do you look at one another? So the famine had not only now affected Egypt, but it had spread, and it was affecting all the surrounding countries, all the surrounding area. And, and it was true of uh, the land of Canaan as well. So verse 2, And he said, Indeed, I have heard that there is grain in Egypt. Go down to that place and buy for us there, that we may live and not die. So Joseph's ten brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. But Jacob did not send Joseph's brother Benjamin with his brothers, for he said, Lest some calamity befall him. Now, you remember, Joseph had four wives, two, um, <laughs> I'm going to say this carefully, two real wives and two um, concubines. They, they're really all four were real wives to him, but they were different categories of wives. There was only one of the four that Jacob truly loved, Rachel. He got uh, uh, hoodwinked into marrying uh, her, uh, her sister, 
um, the tricker was tricked, you know, and uh, he ended up with, with two wives. And then because of one not being able to bear children, he, he ended up with four wives. And uh, what a mess, you know. There was one he loved, and that was Rachel. And Rachel only had two children. Joseph was the firstborn, and Benjamin was born about the time that uh, Joseph was sent off into slavery. He, he had met his brother, but he was just a little kid, uh, or a little baby even, when he went off into uh, slavery. So, um, you remember the story. Jacob showed favoritism towards the son of the wife that he loved, the firstborn son of the wife that he loved. That would be Joseph. And so he treated him differently than the other boys. And he gave him a coat of many colors. And the, the other brothers were jealous of him. They hated him. They hated him not only for that, but they hated him also for the dreams that he told. And you remember how Joseph ended up in Egypt in the first place. It was because of all of this mess in the family and because he had uh, told them his dreams. And, and uh, what a tragedy. So now there's one son left from Rachel, and that's Benjamin. And jo Jacob is treating him differently than the other boys. Okay, he's still doing this. And he's now saying, well, look, you ten go down to Egypt. If something happens to you, you know, I still have Benjamin. Now, he doesn't say that, but, I mean, it doesn't take too much to read that in here, okay? You've, I've still got Benjamin. He's the son of my love. He's my favorite son. If there's a favored nation status, well, in his family, there's a favorite son status, and Benjamin's got it, okay? And so Benjamin is his favorite boy at this point. Now, remember, the other brothers hated Joseph because of this. Nothing is said about that here, about Benjamin, but they can see the favoritism nevertheless. All right, verse 6. Now, Joseph was governor over the land, and it was he who sold to all the people of the land, and Joseph's brothers came and bowed down before him with their faces to the earth. Let me read that again. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed down before him with their faces to the earth. Is that a fulfillment of the dream? Completely? Partial fulfillment. Okay. Where is Benjamin? Okay. That's not, the dream didn't have ten sheaves. Okay, all the sheaves were bowing down before him. Okay, so partial fulfillment. Now, let's take a look at the rest of this story here, though. Joseph saw his brothers, and he recognized them, but he acted as a stranger to them and spoke roughly to them. Then he said to them, where do you come from? And they said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. So J Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. Then Joseph remembered the dreams which he had dreamed about them, and said to them, you are spies. You have come to see the nakedness of the land. <laughs> so in this first meeting, Joseph recognizes his brothers. They don't recognize him. He's, he's going to look completely different. He's, he looks like an Egyptian now. They don't. They look like shepherds. When they last saw him, he looked like a shepherd like they did. Now he looks like a king, uh, a pharaoh in a sense, you know. And what is the first thing they do? They bow their faces down before him. It was here that Joseph remembered the dreams, the prophecy, really, concerning his life. And, uh, and he remembered those original dreams. In those dreams, as I said, he saw all of his brothers bowing down before him. Benjamin is missing. 
But, um, and in the second dream, he saw his father bowing down. So the truthfulness of the dream is apparent, but the fulfillment has not yet occurred. Partial fulfillment, yes, but not the full fulfillment. Now we see Joseph swing into action and begin what God calls in Isaiah his strange work. This is really out of character for Joseph. As you saw him in prison, as you saw him in Potiphar's house, he went out of his way to be helpful. He went out of his way to see what was the matter with the the prisoners, to take care of their intimate needs. Now he's doing something that is really almost out of character. It's absolutely right what he's doing, but it's a strange work. It's the kind of work that God does when he is dealing with his, his own people, bringing um, a discipline to them. The purpose of this judgment is to bring about reconciliation. That's the purpose of it. He loves his brothers, and he wants to bring about reconciliation. It's not an easy task. Four times he accuses them of being spies, and in, as a result of doing this, it brings out some important details uh, to Joseph. He finds out, number one, that his brother is still living. He finds out, number two, that his father is still alive. He shouldn't be surprised. That's what the dream indicated. That's what the prophecy indicated, that they would all come under his uh, leadership. So, they said, we are 12 brothers total, or we were 12 brothers total. One is still at home with his father, and one is not, meaning he's gone. He's, he's dead as far as they were concerned. And so they assumed that Joseph must have died in obscurity in Egypt. Little did they know they were speaking to him. Now that Joseph knew that Benjamin was alive and Jacob was too, he was able to work on bringing, about, uh, bringing his brothers face-to-face with the same circumstances that they faced when they were dealing with Joseph. And it's masterful what he does here. How would they respond this time? So initially he speaks roughly to them. He accuses them of being spies, which, by the way, would bring the death penalty. Okay, this was no um, just kind of an addendum he was throwing out there, you know, as part of the package. If, If they were found guilty as spies in Egypt, he says later you will die. So they recognize very clearly here when he's making this accusation as the one in command of Egypt, apart from Pharaoh, that their lives are at stake. You deserve to die. It was a threat against their very lives. Does this sound familiar? They saw Joseph. And they saw him coming to find out what was going on with them and the sheep. And they said, hey, there's the dreamer. Let us kill him. He deserves to die. Let us kill him and cast him into the pit. And we shall say, some wild beast has devoured him. We shall see what will become of his dreams. They said back in chapter 37. So to test them, he says, he says, One of them can go back to Canaan. The other nine are going to stay in prison. You say that you have a brother. All right? Prove that you're not spies by going and getting your brother and you bring him back to me. And then I'll see that you're truthful men. And the rest of you are going to stay in prison until we see what happens here. And for three days, they were cast into a pit. No, I'm sorry. 
they were imprisoned. Okay? Similar circumstances so far. All right? If he doesn't return with his brother, the other nine would die. So they're locked up three days in the slammer. And they put Joseph through this. Now they were faced with similar circumstances. They were faced, or they were thrown into solitary confinement in this uh, prison. Now, I want, I want you to understand something here. You might read this story and say, that's vengeful. Joseph is acting in revenge against what they had done to him. I don't believe that's true at all. I believe that what Joseph is doing here is that he had already put aside any kind of personal vendetta. That was already gone. That was out of his system. I don't know if it was there to begin with, but it certainly wasn't there at this point. He had already put it aside. Now he had one purpose in mind, and that was for them to be reconciled to him and ultimately to be reconciled to God. And he would do whatever it took for that to happen, okay? Even if it meant doing things that were out of, his, out of character for him. Very difficult things for him to do. Three days later, he released them from the pit. And there's a change of plans. He says, okay, I'll tell you what. I fear God. And I'm going to let nine of you go. Instead of there being nine in prison and one going, I'm going to let nine of you go, and I'm going to keep one. And so they chose Simeon, he chose Simeon, put Simeon in prison, and said, when you bring your brother back, don't come back unless you bring your brother back. And if they, he finds them out to be liars, of course, uh, Simeon would be killed. All right, Genesis 42, 21. This is what they said in front of Joseph. Then they said to one another, We are truly guilty concerning our brother. For we saw the anguish of his soul when he pleaded with us, and we would not hear. Therefore this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered them, saying, Did I not speak to you, saying, Do not sin against the boy, and you would not listen? Therefore, behold, his blood is now required of us. But they did not know that Joseph understood them. For he spoke to them through an interpreter. So all the stuff that had been going on so far had all been through an interpreter. He spoke in the Egyptian language. The interpreter went blah, 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 blah in, in uh, the Hebrew tongue. They would, they would speak to him in the Hebrew tongue and they would go black in, in the Egyptian language. And so this whole thing was going on. There was no suspicion at all that Joseph was here. He's listening and he hears the whole thing. We are guilty, they're saying. We did wrong to our brother. Yes, you did. But they did not know that Joseph understood them, for he spoke to them through an interpreter. And he turned himself away from them and wept. Then he returned to them again and talked with them, and he took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. The ice is beginning to crack. But brothers and sisters, this was 20 years later. This was 20 years after they had sold him into slavery. Now was the time for a reckoning. It's interesting that it's now that their guilt is awakened. And they're feeling the distress that Joseph must have felt when they uh, were uh, about to sell him into slavery. And now they're troubled by it. Now they long for relief from the guilt of their conscience. But I want to tell you something. 
even though they may have stuffed their conscience, you understand what I mean by that? That's a term that is used where you stuff your conscience. It means that you try to stuff down something that you feel guilty about. It never works, okay? God has an uncanny way of bringing circumstances to bear in your life where you are reminded over and over and over again of things that you have done wrong. And he won't let it go. Why not? Because he cares too much for you, okay? He wants you to have a conscience void of offense toward God and toward man. And so if you have been stuffing those guilty thoughts, deal with them before the Lord. That's what he wants, for you to have a right relationship right and fellowship, close fellowship with him. They see no way out of this dilemma. And so they admit their guilt to each other that this must have been what Joseph went through. What is going to become of us? There's no way Dad is going to let us bring Benjamin down here. And so now we're between a rock and a hard place. We have to go back and tell Dad that now he's holding Simeon. And it's either we we come back with Benjamin to get Simeon or we leave Simeon there and he's going to die. And they're, they're filled with distress and anguish. And, and they recognize that this has come upon them because of what they did to their brother Joseph. And they long for relief from their troubles. Even though Joseph had pled with them for mercy, it says that in the passage here, they hardened their heart. They wouldn't listen to him. They didn't care. It says here... Um, uh, Reuben said, therefore, behold, his blood is now required of us. It's interesting because they assumed that Joseph had died and they recognized that it was because of their actions that Joseph had died. They were guilty. Now, he hadn't died. He was standing there, but they didn't know that. But they felt the blood guiltiness of his death because they intended for him to die. And it became overwhelming to Joseph as he sat there and he, or he stood there and he listened to what they were saying. It became so overwhelming to him because I'm sure that Joseph sat, was, was straining every fiber in his body to hold back and say, hey, brothers, it's me, I'm Joseph. Okay? That wouldn't have worked. They weren't ready for that yet. They had admitted guilt, but admitting guilt is not the same thing as repentance. And he saw that clearly. To say, I was wrong, that's good. It's a good first step. You have to come to that point. But even salvation demands repentance. Salvation is more than just saying, God, I am a sinner. I was wrong. I've been wrong against you. But there is repentance that comes with it. And that is a change of action as a result. There should be a change of life as a result of our um, confessing of our sins. So they confess their sins, not the same as repentance. So the test continues, and it's part of this strange work in, that God does in a person's life and that Joseph is doing in his brother's life, continuing pressure on those whom he loves with the goal of bringing full and complete restoration. Now, let me say this. When you deal with a person on that basis and you are trying to bring them back to full and complete repentance, it's not about the person administering the discipline, okay? In other words, 
It's not for my benefit that I do that. It's for the benefit of the person who is not walking with the Lord. It wasn't so Joseph could say ultimately when his brothers repent, I won! Okay? That's not the goal here. It's for the benefit of the one being tested that he might have a proper relationship and be in fellowship with God. And so Joseph ramps up the test by putting their silver, their money, back in the mouths of their uh, grain sacks, and he sends them on their way. And so as they go along the trip, they have to stop and feed the animals, and they open the sack of one, my silver's here, my money's here, designed by Joseph as part of the test. Now, it's interesting to to stop here for just a moment. Should that be scary, to find your money in the sack? Well, if it makes you look like thieves, it should, okay? And that's what they thought in, in, with this, this event, that, oh, no, now he's going to think not only are we spies, but we're thieves too, that we gave him money and we took it back. And they're going to count, they're going to do an accounting at the end of the day, and as they figure it out on their, uh, you know, quicken, it's not going to add up, okay? And so he's saying, uh, we're in trouble. We're in deeper trouble now than we were before. And then when they finally get home and they all open their sack and all the money is in every one of their sacks, they're just fit to be tied. They have no idea what to do next. Now, that's their perspective. But let's look at it from Joseph's perspective, okay? He put the money back in the sack. Why did he do that? It was a kindness to them. You know the Bible says that it is the kindness of God that leads to repentance? And he was demonstrating the kindness of God here in leading the, to lead them to repentance. It was a gift. He had given them a gift. Not only had he given them the grain, which they came for, but he gave them the full dollar value back. All of it. It's yours. Keep it. That's the abundance. And that's what Joseph wanted to do to his family. He wanted to give not only the grain of Egypt, but the, but the best land of Egypt. He wanted to take care of his family and bring them to himself. So, they eat the grain, and uh, they, they come back to their father, and they, they tell him that, uh, that uh, Simeon is back there, and, and this is what Jacob says in verse 36, chapter 42, 36. Jacob, their father, said to them, you've bereaved me. Joseph is no more. Simeon is no more. And you want to take Benjamin. All these things are against me. True? Or not true? Not true. Not true. Then I have to think about Jacob and I have to ask myself, do I utter words like that? Do I, do I hear words like that falling from my lips when things aren't going well? When things aren't going the way I think they should be going? When things aren't going the way I expect them to go? Do I say, oh, everything is against me? Now remember that verse that we talked about at the beginning? The second verse from the New Testament, God causes all things to work together for good to them that love God and are called according to his purposes. Do you ever hear those words falling from your lips? Woe is me, I am undone, you know? Look, the Bible says every good gift and every perfect gift comes from the Father. If along the way he says no, just be glad that a right around the corner is a yes. And his no 
is just as important as his yes. These momentary light afflictions are but for a moment. We await the eternal weight of glory. So the boys return. They're brought to Joseph's house. They have to go back um, and get grain. And their father finally releases uh, Benjamin to them. First thing they do when they get back is they take the steward aside and say, Hey, bud, (laughs) something happened here. I know that your accounting uh, uh, clerk didn't get, uh, you know, it didn't add, the, the numbers didn't add up that day. Um, here's the reason. Uh, somehow it got back in our sack and we brought it back for you. It's all still here, polished and everything. It's all yours. He says, I accounted for that money. God must have given you a gift. Duh. Okay, that's exactly right. God had given them a gift through Joseph. Now, the strangest thing happened. Chapter 43, verse 26. And when Joseph came home, they brought him the present which was in their hand. Oh, that's right. Forgot to mention this to you. When Jacob sent them back, he said, take double the money, not only for the grain for this time, but for last time. And besides that, take everything you can uh, of the goods from the, you know, the produce or the products that, that still are not affected by the famine. Bring all that with you too. You know, whether it's pistachios or whatever it is, just bring it down there, load them up, show them that you're good kids, okay? And uh, so Joseph came home, they brought him the present which was in their hand, and they bowed down before him to the earth. Now, by the way, we didn't read this part, but Simeon had come out of prison at this point. And so is this the fulfillment of the dream? The first dream it is. Yes, it is. Okay, you have the brothers all bowing down before him. And they asked him about their well-being, and he said, Is your father well, the old man of whom you spoke? Is he still alive? And they answered, Your servant, our father, is in good health, and he is still alive. And they bowed their heads down and prostrated themselves twice in this event here. It's a marvelous story. Then he lifted his eyes and saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son, and said, Is this your younger brother of whom you spoke to me? And he said, God be gracious to you, my son. Now his heart yearned for his brother, so Joseph made haste and sought somewhere to weep. And he went into his chamber and he wept there. Then he washed his face and came, and I'll tell you right now, when he, t- when he, when he set eyes on Benjamin, <laughs> wow, uh, he, he couldn't contain himself. And he went aside, he, he wept in his chamber, and I'm sure he probably fought even in his heart at this point. I'm just going to go out and tell him who I am. But he realized that repentance had not been fulfilled yet it had not come complete full circle yet and so he went back out there washed his face went back out there restrained himself said serve the bread so they set him a place by himself and them by themselves and the egyptians who ate with him by themselves because the egyptians could not eat food with the hebrews for that is an abomination to the egyptians and they sat before him the firstborn according to his birthright and the youngest according to his youth and the men looked in astonishment at one another so here you have him say, okay, you're all going to be seated and I'm going to put the oldest here and then I'm going to go all the way down to the youngest. You're in the proper birth order. How amazing is that? Okay? Now, if they had any sense, they'd say, the providence of God. You know, God is putting this whole thing together. Joseph knew who they were. And then here is the, the beginning of the, the test. He took servings to them from before him, but Benjamin's serving was five times as much as any of theirs so they drank and were merry with him so far so good 
I don't hear any grumbling. I don't hear any complaining. I don't hear anybody saying, hey, wait a minute. Why is he the favorite son? Well, why does he always get the best? How come dad treats him so well and you are too? <laughs> so they finished their meal and the fi- for the final test, he gave them their sacks of grain, again with their money in it. And this time he took his, his uh, silver cup and he put it in Benjamin's sack. And when he put it in Benjamin's sack, he sent them on their way and off they went. And he said to his servant, he said, okay, you wait till they get down the road a little bit and then go chase after them. And so he did. And he came and says, all right, you guys, one of you stole his cup. Absolutely not. If, any, if you find the cup with any of us, let us die. <sighs> they haven't learned to keep their mouth shut. Okay? And so he says, okay, then let's see how truthful you are. And so they go through this long process of taking all the grain off their animals and, and putting it on the ground. And from the oldest all the way down it's just painful to almost read about it and you get down to benjamin and there's the cup and it just pierces their heart they realize that they're in deep deep trouble now if they thought they were in trouble because the silver appeared the first time in their sack what do they feel now that the silver cup is in the in the sack uh, of benjamin there it is verse Uh, Chapter 44, verse 9, With whomever of your servants it is found, let him die, and we will also be my Lord's slaves. And he said, Now also let it be according to your words. He with whom it is found shall be my slave, and you shall be blameless. Then each man speedily let down his sack, and so on. We went through all that. When they found it in the youngest, the cup was found in Benjamin's sack, then they tore their clothes, and each man loaded his donkey to return to the city. Now the question is this. Here is the full circle of the test. Okay? When it came time to Joseph um, coming to, to, uh, to see his brothers, they were heartless. They sold him in a heartbeat. They betrayed their own brother, and they sold him as a slave to Egypt. They didn't care. The only people they cared about were themselves. And Joseph was in the way of them being happy and free or whatever it was, and they hated him. Now you've got the same problem. Now it's Benjamin, the, same, the son of the same wife and father. The favorite son, again. And now he's causing us trouble, again. What are we going to do with him? And so the question there is, the servant actually told him, look, you guys go on your way, okay? I'm only taking this one. He's the guilty one. I'm taking him back. We're going to punish him. No, not on your life. We're all going back. That's a change. That's a big change in these brothers. Would they betray Benjamin? Would they show concern and compassion for this new favorite son? Would they care about the grief that would cause their father? Yeah, they did care this time. And so Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, and he was still there. And, and uh, Joseph said to them, What deed is this that you have done? Did you not know that such a man as I can certainly practice divination? And Judah said, What shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? Or how shall we clear ourselves? He is, he is acknowledging guilt. It's not his guilt. The cup wasn't found in his cup. The cup wasn't found in his sack. But he's representing all of the brothers here. God has found out the iniquity of your servants. Here we are, my Lord's slaves, both we and he also with whom the cup was found. But he said, far be it from me that I should do so. The man in whose cup the uh, hand the cup was found, he shall be my slave. And as for you, go up in peace to your father. 
Then Judah came near to him and said, Oh, my Lord, please let your servant speak a word in my Lord's hearing. And do not let your anger burn against your servant, for you are even like Pharaoh. My Lord asked his servant, saying, Have you a father or a brother? And we said to my Lord, We have a father, an old man, and a child of his old age who is young. His brother is dead, and he alone is left of his mother's children, and his father loves him. Then you said to your servants, Bring him down to me, that I may set eyes on him. And we said to my Lord, The lad cannot leave his father, or if he should leave his father, his father would die. But you said to your servants, Unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you shall see my face no more. So it was when we went up to your father, to, to your servant, my father, and we told him the words of my Lord. And our father said, Go back and buy us a little food. But we said, We cannot go down if our youngest brother is not with us. Then we will, will not go down, for we may not see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. And your fa- then your servant, my father, said to us, You know that my wife bore me two sons. And the one went out from me, and I said, Surely he is torn to pieces, and I have not seen him since. But if you take this one also from me, the cal- and calamity befalls him, you shall bring down my gray hair with sorrow to the grave. Now therefore, when I come to your servant, my father, and the lad is not with us, since his life is bound up in the lad's life, it will happen that when he sees the lad is not with us, that he will die. So your servants will bring down the gray hair of your servant, our father, with sorrow to the grave. For your servant became surety for the lad to my father, saying, If I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father forever. Now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the lad as a slave to my Lord and let the lad go up with his brothers. For how shall I go up to my father if the lad is not with me, lest perhaps I see the evil that would come upon my father? What is this? It's repentance. Here you have Jacob who is representing all the boys and he's saying, God has found out our iniquity this day. That's admission of guilt. That's a good start. That's a good place to be. But he, Judah, I'm sorry. But he said, he said here, look, I became surety, meaning I am the security. I, I made myself the security for my father that I would bring Benjamin back. And if I can't, my father's going to die. Here's what I propose to you. Pharaoh next, I mean the man next to Pharaoh. Let me take Benjamin's place. You allow Benjamin to go. He's the one that is guilty here, according to all that we can see. Let me take his place. That's substitution. Greater love has no man than this, that he lay down his life for another. That's really what he's doing. He's saying, look, I'll take the punishment. I'll take whatever befalls me. Let him go free. He had more concern for his brother and for his father than he had for his own life at this point. That's true repentance. It's come full circle here in um, their lives. Then Joseph could not restrain himself before all those who stood by him. And he cried out, Make everyone go out for me. Joseph did not waste a second here. Okay, As soon as he saw true repentance, that was the time that he would reveal himself to his brothers. And so no one stood with him while Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud, and the Egyptians in the house of Pharaoh heard it. Then Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my brother, does my father still live? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed by his presence. I can imagine. I can imagine they were. And Joseph said to his brothers, Please come near to me. 
And so they came near and he said, I am Joseph, your brother, whom you sold into Egypt. But now do not therefore be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. That tells me something about Joseph's character as well. He was not vindictive. He brought them to the point where they were in the best place to be right with God and right with him. And, and, and it was accomplished. And when it was accomplished, then the floodgates opened up. Man, I'll tell you. It's probably one of the most moving stories in the Bible. And it's, it's not a prodigal son. It's a prodigal family. And the whole family is made right with each other. <laughs> it's great. And right with God. Later on, he says to them, God sent me before you to preserve a posterity for you in the earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. It tells me something about his character. He was not looking out for number one. He says, look, all of this that happened, I recognize that God causes all things to work together for good to them who love him and are called according to his purposes. And that's what he did in my life. He brought me to this point even through what you did. God took those evil things and he brought them together as it is this day to save many people alive. So he, he says, look, here's what I'm going to do for you. Now that you're repentant, he doesn't say it that way, but now that they're repentant, <laughs> kill the fatted calf. Bring on a garment and put it on my son. Feed him the best, the choices. Put a ring on his finger. That's what it is. He says, look, the best land in all of Egypt is Goshen, and I'm going to bring you here. Go back and get my father. Bring him here. You can have the best, the best land for the, for the, the uh, flocks, the best land for your family, and whatever you need, I will provide for you. I want to take care of you. I want to give to you everything that you need. Moreover, it says in the passage, he kissed all his brothers and wept over them. And after that, his brothers talked with him. Years later, we'll end with this. His brothers saw that after uh, Jacob died, they all came down. Jacob lived there for 17 years and they had a wonderful time together. 17 years later, his father died. After the funeral, his brothers said this to Joseph. Uh, they sent messengers to Joseph, actually, saying, Before your father died, he commanded, saying, Thus you shall say to Joseph, I beg you, please forgive the trespass of your brothers and their sin, for they did evil to you. Now please forgive the trespass of the servants of the God of your father. And jo Joseph wept. You know, it's, it's, to me, it's one of the sad notes in the end of the story that Joseph had forgiven them so clearly and had poured out for them such an abundance and 17 years later, after dad goes, they're going, well, he did it just because of dad. No, he did it because that was his character. That's who he was as a person. He loved them. He cherished them. And he, and he provided for them. And he wept. And he spoke to them. Then his brothers also went and fell down before his face. And they said, behold, we are your servants. Joseph said to them, do not be afraid. For am I in the place of God? But as for you, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good in order to bring it about as it is this day to save many people alive. He's saying, look, look at it from the perspective of what God is doing. That's the best perspective anyway. 
God wanted to save a people, a people that he had promised the promised land and, and much, much blessing. That's what he did through the evil that you did to me. God overruled it all. And he brought it about as it is this day to save many people alive. And God used Joseph to bring Israel down to Egypt to be an incubator for the nation of Israel to grow in a place where they were separated, as it were, from the Egyptians. And they could grow as a nation until the time when the iniquity of the Amorites was full and God would bring them to the land that he had promised to them. Now, therefore, do not be afraid. I will provide for you and your little ones. And he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Our time is well past spent, and I apologize for going over. It's a wonderful, wonderful story of what God did in a man, in a life of one man, who saw that God often does a strange work with his people, and he participated with God in it to bring about full and complete repentance. Let us pray. Lord, we come before you today. We thank you so much for this story, this account of how you were working in nations and working in the, the world and upholding the universe by the word of your power all at the same time. And yet you took such great pains to bring about repentance and restoration to this one family. And Lord, I know that there are um, many who are, are at odds with family members we think of um, some who have wandered far from the Lord. There are prodigals, Lord, that still need to return. And we pray that Lord, we pray that you would do a work in the hearts <clears throat> in the lives of all who have strayed that they would return to the Lord and have fellowship with the saints and have fellowship with you. For we ask it in Jesus' name.